We've had so many wonderful things happen in our service already. The uh, first graders receiving their Bibles and our Guatemala recap. And it's also Pastor Arias, uh, first Sunday back from his sabbatical. It's also my first time preaching in a t-shirt for whatever that's worth. Uh, We come now to the ministry of the Word. We come now to our study of Psalm 63. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. As we turn to Psalm 63, we'll be reading the entirety of it before we begin to break down what God is teaching us in this passage of Scripture. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, for providing us with your word that we may know you, that we may know your will and who we are without you and who we may be because of you. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study this passage this morning, once again, I ask that you would help us to know you more, to be in better obedience to your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we are preparing to begin school, is there anyone here who who did not enjoy school very much? Was not your thing? I'm with you. I did not enjoy school. Um, it It was not for me. And any opportunity that I had to get out of school in some way, shape, or form was a wonderful opportunity to me. And I remember one particular day in the third grade where I got to get out of class. Along with the entirety of the rest of the school, I went to a Christian school. We were preschool through 12th grade. And all of us got out of class because there was a bomb threat at my school. And it turned out to be nothing. And we didn't even know at the time that that's what it was. It turned out to be absolutely nothing, although um, 
Some of the high schoolers, when the bomb-sniffing dogs came in, had some contraband found in their lockers. And so I guess it was not all for nothing. And so looking back at it, I don't see it from the same perspective. You know, I saw it as I, I've, I've gotten out of class. And then later, after we were returned to our class and found out what the issue was, then it was kind of scary. You know, what, what's going on? That's weird. But looking back, I see it from the perspectives of the teachers and the faculty. What must that have been like for them? This was only two years after uh, 9-11, and they must have been very much on edge. And, and then to, to take your own fears and whatever you're going through in processing this might be my last day on earth, having to take a bunch of children and figure out what to do with them. Now, I know what they did with us. I don't know what happened to the rest of the school, but all of the elementary crammed into the large men's locker room uh, away from the school building next to the football field. And I can still picture it in my mind that the elementary music teacher and the elementary Spanish teacher stood up on benches with their guitars and led us in singing praises to the Lord. So I didn't know at the time what was going on. just knew I was out of class. We're singing to Jesus. Life is good. But in times of crisis and desperation, what? better thing to do than to draw near to the Lord in worship, singing to him. And that is what we find in Psalm 63. David finds himself in desperation in the desert. He's in the desert and he's running for his life. And David found himself in the wilderness running for his life on more than one occasion. So we can't be quite sure of when this happened, but it was either on the run from Saul or on the run from his own son, Absalom. And in his desperation, in his crisis, in his trial in the desert, he sings to the Lord. And the truths that he proclaims in this song are truths that we can sing to the Lord. Truths that we can hold to in worship of God. He declares, he proclaims to the Lord in his song that he is in a covenant relationship with him. He also proclaims that in my desperate state where I am, I want only you. Number three, he proclaims, I know you are caring for me. And number four, he proclaims, I know you will save me. So let's look to verse 63. Oh God, you are my God. Again, David here is saying he is in a covenant relationship with God. As it says in the old hymn, I am his and he is is mine. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are also in a covenant relationship with him. You can say, I belong to God in all of my sin, all of my ugliness, all of my trouble that I cause, I belong to God. And all of his majesty, all of his power and splendor are available to me. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, to say God is ours is to say The whole world is ours, and a great deal more. It is to give us title to everything which may be requisite or convenient for us. Whatever we can desire or stand in need of, it is all wrapped up in this, Thou art my God. This is a perfect place for David to start. 
I don't know what's going to happen. I can't see my way out of this desert. I can't see my way out of this trial. But I do know one thing. I know who my God is. Whatever you're going through, what a great reminder that I don't know everything, but I know who my God is. There's a story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was known to have struggled with depression in, in, in seasons throughout his life. And there was one particular bout he had with depression where he just could not shake the sorrow. And they, they, they counseled him, go away and spend some time working through this and, and get some rest and peace. And he went away and he came back still struggling with this immense and deep sorrow. And he saw his wife dressed in all black for a funeral and says, oh no, who died? And she said to him, the way you've been acting, I thought God must have died. And it's said to have pulled him out of his season of depression. Now, we know that uh, we all have struggles and we don't always snap out of them so easily. But here we see that a great start when you are in a dark place, when you are in a desert, is to say, I don't know everything, but I know who God is. David declares, I am in covenant relationship with you, God. And then he says, in my desperate state, I want only you. Let's look at the second half of verse 1 and continue. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. He says, earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly, I seek you. Now, Romans 3 tells us that no one seeks the Lord apart from being changed by the Holy Spirit. None of us are seeking the Lord. That's not how we're built. We're built to seek the things that make us happy. We are built to seek the things that will serve our purposes and our will. No one seeks God. But when we are changed by the Holy Spirit and brought to repentance, when we are changed by the Holy Spirit and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, That's our new default setting is to seek the Lord. That is what we should do. You know, sometimes we are so willing to seek out, relentlessly seek out trivial, pointless things. I I think just earlier this week, there was a song that was stuck in my head. But none of the words were there. It was just the guitar solo. And it was just, all I knew is this is some 80s rock and roll song, and I I can't figure out what song this is, and it was driving me crazy. And so I thought, well, you know, I got to figure out what this is. This is going to drive me crazy if I don't identify what song this is. And so they have the apps that you can download and you can hum into the thing, and it'll tell you what the song is. And so I downloaded the app, and... All I know is the guitar solo parts are going into my phone like a crazy person. And it had no idea what I was trying to get it to come up with. And so I called my dad because, you know, the 80s. And so I called my dad and, and he said, yeah, you know, I think it might be this band. It wasn't. 
I'm not sure. I know what you're talking about. I can't come up with it. And I was like, I, Kylie, I can't get this out of my head and it's going to drive me crazy. I, I, I have to know what it is. And so then I called my uncle because he's Mr. Rock and Roll. I bring in the big guns. He still has no idea what I'm talking about. And then we're having dinner and it's supposed to be a nice time with family and friends. And I remember about a half a sentence of lyrics and I Google it immediately and find the song. And I'm so happy I have found what I was looking for. I have sought it and I have achieved it. And it wasn't even a song I'm really all that fond of. (laughs) But it was a pointless mission in my mind. How often do we seek out trivial things that don't matter to anyone and yet when it comes to things which are eternally significant, we are so half-hearted and lackadaisical. This, I seek you. Well, we could easily skip over that. But we need to be seeking the Lord all the time. David says, my soul thirsts for you. We think of the words from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we aim to be spiritually nourished from the Lord alone, from Jesus Christ alone and nothing else, when that is our aim is to be filled by those things, God will honor that. He will nourish our spiritual needs. He says, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The only water that truly satisfies in this dry and barren land that is this fallen sinful world, the only water that satisfies is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We find in our God absolutely everything that this world cannot give us. He is the only source of all of the things that we need. All of the things that we truly need. He's the only place to get it. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do we need? Our greatest need, our most paramount need in our life is freedom and forgiveness from sin. And if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that might not feel like your greatest need. You may have identified other things as a much greater need than that, but I promise you, freedom and forgiveness of sin is all of our greatest needs. And everything that truly ails us is a result of sin in this world. We can't help but think here of the woman at the well. Jesus told her, I have living water and whoever drinks it will never be thirsty again. And this gets to the heart of the issue. If there's only one source of water in the desert and you've got all these people in the desert and only one source of water, you would expect that to be a pretty hopping place, wouldn't you? You would expect to encounter a crowd at that source of water. But that's not what we see and that's not what the Bible tells us that we will see. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The only problem is that even though we live in a dry and a barren land, we live in a place where a lot of things look like water. And it's all a mirage. It's all a mirage David is saying, I know there's nothing else that will satisfy my spiritual needs. They all will leave me thirsty. 
but I am desperate for you, Lord. Like I'm in this desert and you're the only place I'm going to find water. Is that how we think of Jesus Christ? Because it should be. That's how we know that we should think of Jesus Christ. But is that how we think of Christ Jesus? Is that where we let our minds sit and rest on the fact that Jesus is the only source of everything that we need? David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Does that mean that he peeked into the tabernacle and saw the ark? Well, we know that David did see the ark of the covenant of God. But there's something more here. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David has seen the glory of God many times in his life. He's seen God's great protection and love many times in his life. When you find yourself in a spiritual desert, you should be recalling to mind all of the times that you have experienced the awesome glory of God. Play the highlight reel of God. Think of all the amazing things that God has done and recorded in his word for us to review. Think of all of the times personally that you have seen God working. You know what I realized recently is that uh, we're only three weeks away from the one-year anniversary of me sending my resume to Cornerstone Church. It doesn't seem like that long, but it has been that long. And I'm I'm so glad that God directed that whole process. But I think of where I was a year ago today. And in many ways, I was in a desert, wondering what God would have for me, what God would have for my family. There were so many questions that I didn't know the answers to. And I have seen God show up in big and mighty and glorious ways so many times just in the past year. And I think of every time I've looked at my wife and said, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And it seems like the Lord waits just long enough for us to sweat it and shows us exactly (laughs) how he will come through for us. And that's not a unique story, is it? We all can reflect on powerful memories that we've had with our Lord and Savior When that stuff happens to you, file it away because those are precious jewels to take out and look at when you're in the desert. The last time I was in a desert, God did, oh, this amazing thing. I almost forgot about it. File those things away. Play the highlight reel of God in your life, of God and his people throughout human history. David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. God's love is better than life itself. Philippians 1.21 says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. What is our life if not something to give completely in service to the God who saved us? In life, we experience the love of God and the opportunity to serve and worship him. And in death, we experience the opportunity to see him face to face. The best part of our earthly life is serving God. The best part of the end of our earthly life is seeing God. 
His love is better than life itself. And therefore, our, our, outlight, our outlook on our circumstance should be bigger than what we can see here in this life. So David says, I'm in covenant relationship with you. In my desperate state, I want only you. And he says, I know you are caring for me. Let's look to verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. We see food all over the Bible. As we look at our Bible, we see food all over. We see here fat and rich food. We see an awful lot about bread in the Bible. It's, the Bible is, is not a low-carb book. Uh, we, we see quail at one point. My favorite, we see fattened calves. Yeah. Uh, so you low-carb vegans, I just, you preach Bible, get right with the Lord. That's all I got on that. So... <laughs> The, the point here with fat and rich food is that the Lord provides sufficiently for you. That the Lord provides abundantly for you. He doesn't give you spiritually just enough to get by. He doesn't hand you a granola bar. I don't like granola bars. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we read about how every single spiritual blessing we need we find in Christ Jesus. Every single one, not enough to get by, but we are abundantly, sufficiently nourished spiritually. He says, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. We can't help but talk about the things that we love. They give us joy. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If David can sing to the Lord in joy when he's in the desert, we can sing to the Lord in joy in the middle of whatever we're going through. Whatever we are going through. He says in verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What do you lie in bed thinking about? Where does your mind go when it doesn't have to go anywhere in particular? Whatever it is, I can guarantee you it's important to you. It's important to you. And when our God is important to us, he begins to be the place that our mind goes. That our, our mind just goes there. And that happens more and more the longer we seek him. But that should be where our mind goes. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He knows that it's God holding him up. He knows that it's God who is keeping his head above water. And he's not going to let go. You ever been ice skating? You ever been ice skating when you're really bad at ice skating? What do you want to do? Hold on to the wall. People, Get off the wall. Come on. I'm not, not letting go of this wall. This is the only reason I'm not laying on the floor. I'm going to hang on to it. And then you get cocky and you skate away and then you wind up on the floor. Okay, at no point in the Christian life should we get cocky enough to let go of the rock of ages. That's the only reason we're not on the floor. Hang on to it. So he says, I know you are 
currently taking care of me. He says, I'm in the shadow of your wings. That's the place that I'm going to sing for joy is in the shadow of your wings. What does that mean? That means he knows that God is protecting him. He knows God is caring for him right now. It's good to have a heavenly perspective and know one day we will see the Lord. But to know right now God is caring for us. He's covering us. He's reflected on what God has done for him. He's reflecting on what God is doing for him. And finally, he will reflect on what God will do for him. He says, I know you will save me. Let's look at verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Verse 9, he says, but those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. And he says, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. As David thinks about what God will do for him and how God will save him, one of the things he is thinking on is the fate of his enemies, the people who are seeking to do him harm. And he says that the jackals will eat them. Well, why does he say the jackals will eat them? Well, those who fall in battle have a little bit different circumstance with their remains than those who would have died safely of natural causes at home. Those who have died safely of natural causes at home would, of course, be granted a burial. But David has seen a battle a time or two, and he knows that when the field is littered with the bodies of the fallen, that the wildlife feeds on them. And there is a sense in which there's a humiliation there. It's okay for us to long for the justice of God. It's okay for us to root for God to win and everything that that entails. It's no mystery that there are some wicked people in power. That there are some wicked, terrible people in power in our country and in really every country around the world There are wicked people in power. We think of people who are complicit in the genocide of the unborn children in the wombs of their mothers. We think of those who are complicit in the mutilation of the bodies of children. That's wicked. And we should not be afraid or ashamed to call those things wicked as I hope those first graders will not be ashamed to one day do as well, to call those things wicked. Now, what is the best case scenario? The best case scenario for those people, those wicked rulers, what is the best case scenario? The best case scenario is that they would do as we all have done as Christians, that they would repent of their wickedness and put their faith in Jesus Christ and have the blood guilt on their hands be washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for them on the cross. That's the best case scenario and that is the grace of God. What's the second best case scenario? The second best case scenario is that they be struck down in the wrath of God. 
that they be struck down in his wrath and damned to hell forever with their master who is Satan himself. That's the second best case scenario, and that is the justice of God. In Revelation 19, verse 11 to 21, as we examine these 10 verses, um, we, we're in the middle of a, a book that there's a lot of um, disagreement about, but we come to a place where we all, as Christians, can look at and say, yes, we agree, this is what is happening. We see the return of Christ Jesus. And when he returns, he's depicted with a sword coming out of his mouth. We see the nations struck down, and then what do we see? The birds invited to feast on the fallen enemies of God. We see Jesus in victory over the unrighteous rulers and Satan, their master. And we see the damnation of all of the enemies of God. As we look at what David is saying, we can't help but see the connection to the ultimate fate of all of the unrepentant. When our hero shows up, Jesus, who we sing about in the glory that we long to learn about, when our hero shows up, he displays an innate part of his identity. He displays his wrath and justice. And when we meditate on who God is, when we rejoice in him, when we worship him, we don't just meditate on the aspects that we like the best. We don't just worship him for the aspects that are the coziest to us. We don't get to say, Jesus, I love you, but not that part. Jesus, I adore you. But an an innate part of who you are disgusts me. We don't get to do that. It is okay to long for the justice of God. Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Well, what does that mean, swear by him? I thought we weren't supposed to swear to God. What does that mean? Well, Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. What this boils down to is it means that we recognize the Lord as the highest authority in existence in the universe, that he is the highest power and authority. So who are those when we say those who swear by him? Who are those who swear by him? Well, it is the saved. It is the elect. It is the redeemed. It's the faithful. We could say it is the true Christians. That's who swear by him. Well, the only other category listed here is a liar. Reason being that everyone who refuses to declare that Christ is ruler above all, that they are a liar because the truth is that Christ is ruler above all. And the fate of the liars is that they will experience the wrath and justice of God. But those who fear the Lord, the faithful, the repentant, the redeemed, they will be exalted. They will be exalted. You may be in a desert now, but think about how one day you will be exalted. You will be allowed to sit with Jesus on his throne just as he was allowed to sit with his father on his throne. We will be exalted to a high and a mighty place because of Jesus Christ and who we are in him.
And we will be saved from the wrath and judgment of God that we would otherwise certainly deserve. So here are some final thoughts. Do you find yourself right now in a trial? Even if you don't, it's best to be prepared for one. Remember who God is first and first First and first of all, remember who God is. Because when you don't know anything else, we know who God is. Seek after him with everything you have. With everything you have, seek after God and not the trivial things of this world. Don't let any time go by without meditating on God and his goodness. And don't forget to sing his praises. Look at all of the ways that he has cared for you. And that he's caring for you right now. And trust that one day he will save and exalt you. Let's pray. God, you are our God. And when we don't know anything else, we know that. We know that you love us. We know that you offer freedom and forgiveness of sins. And when it comes to our spiritual needs, Lord, please keep us from going anywhere but to your throne of grace. Lord, may we always sing joyfully to you, no matter what life brings us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we would draw near to you, seeking you, knowing you more, loving you more, and in better obedience to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.